Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Although Cuba is one of the United States' closest neighbors, for the last 60 or 70 years, it seemed like a world apart. But times are a-changing, and we're making the most of it. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. The Sound Opinions World Tour treks onto Cuba for a look at the island's influential rhythms. Then we review the posthumous new release from gospel icon Pop Staples. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and coming up, Jim, we're going to review the new album from Roebuck Pops Staples, the patriarch of the Staples singers. Now, Pops was making music almost until the day he died in 2000. He was working on this record at that time, and the title of the record comes from the words he said to his youngest daughter, Mavis Staples, when he was listening to the record in his bedroom, a work in progress, saying, don't lose this. Lo and behold, 15 years later, Jim, we finally have that album. It's a very timely gift, Greg. We'll talk about it later in the show, but first we have some music news. That is the song Take Good Care of My Heart by Leslie Gore from 1969, Greg, when she was working with Philly super producers Gamble and Huff, showing a little bit of a soul side. She will always be best known as perhaps the most successful solo voice of the girl group era. Miss Gore died at the age of 68 not long ago from lung cancer. What a fascinating story. She was literally a teenager in the early 1960s when she recorded these huge hit songs about heartbreak and bouncing back and empowering oneself. She worked really closely with Quincy Jones, some of his earliest hits. He discovered her literally when she was in high school. She was born in Brooklyn. She was raised in Tenafly, New Jersey. And that incredible string of hits in the girl group era, It's My Party, Judy's Turn to Cry, the 1964 single, You Don't Own Me, all recorded before she was 18. Really amazing. But her career didn't end there. She had lots of interesting footnotes through the years. She was part of those concerts that were part of the film The Tammy Show, singing and holding the stage on her own alongside James Brown, the Rolling Stones, the Supremes, and Marvin Gaye. She was in Batman, the original Batman series, as a henchwoman to (laughs) Catwoman. Later in her career, she wrote a song with her brother that was on the Fame soundtrack. She was working on reviving her musical catalog as part of a Broadway show. When she died, she was also trying to write a memoir. And she was very active in the LGBT community for the last decade and a half or so of her life, coming out as openly gay late in her life in 2005 and hosting a PBS News Magazine about gay issues. She was a hero to many, many people. And I think 
it's all summed up in this song we're going to play as tribute. You don't owe me. I mean, you know, she she said later in life, I, I was hardly a feminist. I was too young to even know what that is. But I love the idea of standing on stage and wagging my finger as I sang this really catchy song about don't tell me what to do, right? I mean, there is the essence of rock and roll in a nutshell. You can't tell me what to do. You hear it in her voice. You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore on Sound Opinions. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other Don't Own Me from Leslie Gore, a classic song that has been covered numerous times. Dusty Springfield, Joan Jett, Klaus Nomi, Diane Keaton, Bette Midler, and Goldie Hawn collaborated on it in that 1996 movie First Wives Club, Jim, one of your favorites. Oh, yeah, of course. And and then we have uh, the Leslie Gore version, which is still timeless and a classic. Leslie Gore, dead at the age of 68. Your 
You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that's a track called De Camino a la Vareda from the Buena Vista Social Club record of 1997. That album and the film documenting its recording became huge hits in the United States and introduced North American audiences to veteran Cuban performers like Campe Segundo, Ibrahim Ferrer, and Ruben Gonzalez. Every once in a while on the show, we like to embark on a world tour, exploring the musical culture of countries like South Africa, Sweden, and Japan. And this week, we're heading to Cuba. Jim, you could make the argument that Cuba has had a bigger impact on music globally than any other country in the Americas. Its distinctive rhythms like the mambo, cha-cha-cha, and rumba have transformed jazz, rock, funk, and salsa. And now the U.S. and Cuba are at a moment of historic change, Greg. Since the 1959 communist revolution, the United States has imposed a trade embargo on Cuba. We've had travel restrictions. And in 61, infamously, there was even the threat of nuclear war. This isolation means that many artists famous in Cuba are virtually unknown off the island, like the innovative singer-songwriter Pedro Luis Ferrer. Mariposa me retosa la canción junto a la boca. Cuban foreign policy is still controversial, especially within the large Cuban-American community centered in Miami. But in December, after negotiations that even involved the Pope, President Obama announced plans to normalize diplomatic relations. So as the barriers begin to come down, we thought we'd enlist some help in exploring the music of Cuba. Ned Sublett is the author of Cuba and its music, from the first drums to the mambo. He's also a musician, radio producer, and co-founder of the Cuba Disc record label, which was a pioneer in releasing contemporary Cuban music in the United States. We're entrusting him to take us across the Straits of Florida to the Cuban shores. Ned, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. It's great to be here. So when people in North America think about Cuban music these days, I imagine the most recent thing their minds set on is that Buena Vista Social Club record, which is already close to 20 years old at this point. So, Ned, what was it about that recording that galvanized North American listeners above all other Cuban recordings of the last 30, 40 years? Remember, Buena Vista Social Club actually broke first in Europe, and it was a bigger hit in Europe than it was in the United States. It was number one pop in Germany for four weeks. As to what makes a hit, you know, if I could tell you, I'd have one. (laughs) It was made very well in the sense of very well thought out and thought out on the fly. I'll give Nick Gold a lot of credit. He made a record that had a cast of voices. If it had just been a Compay Segundo record, it might well have sold 30,000 copies. But this cast of characters, given a name which seemed to suggest an ambience or a group that did not really, in fact, exist. Something about it just made it the perfect beginning Cuba record for people. I didn't like the record. I mean, I really didn't like it. But I have a lot of respect for what they did making it, and I think they treated the musicians well. But even though it wasn't really played right to my ear on that record, the music itself is so convincing and so winning. But it kind of was an introduction for someone 
who didn't know anything about Cuban music. Right? It's, it's when we go to, to Chinatown in New York or in Chicago and have a meal, we're not eating what the Chinese eat. Right. That's right. Uh, there's always been two Cuban musics, one for domestic consumption and one for export. And yet it's pervasive influence from Cuba. There's no doubt about that. It has influenced music so much in, in the last century. In the United States, we've heard relatively little Cuban music from Cuba, but there's still a thriving scene there, right? Oh, Cuba is alive with music. I always tell people I've been in three transcendental music scenes in my life. Downtown New York in the 70s and early 80s, Cuba during the special period in New Orleans before and after the flood of the three, Cuba by far the richest musical experience. Cuba was a capital of music in the 16th century already. Havana's 200 years older than New Orleans. It goes way back. And part of it is geographic, right, Ned? I mean, if we look at the history, the Europeans, people from the African continent, people from North and South America, everybody docked at Cuba at some point. Everybody did. But there are specific lines that we can trace, in particular specific African lines that we can trace that show up in Cuba to make a rather different music than we had in the Afro-United States. Our music was, for one thing, very heavily influenced by Senegambians. Senegambians were not wanted in the Spanish domains, beginning in the 1520s already. Uh, Carlos V, the Holy Roman Emperor, wanted them kept out of the Spanish dominions. So there is no banjo in Cuba, for example. It's a different history. You talk about this history, this deep, long history, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the music for both the United States and Cuba, they're both these very New World-type countries. When you think about it, they were both colonized by Europeans. And yet, the musical differences, I think, are pretty profound. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, Cuba's music, I mean, in the U.S., we got the blues. Cuba is something different than that. Why, why do you think that happened? That's right. Afro-Cuban and African-American music are so different as to form almost oppositional systems of music. Cuban music tends to be syllabic. One note to a syllable, whereas we like melisma in the U.S., mm -hmm. you know, lots of ornamentation, you know, think of Aaron Neville and tell it like it is or something. Don't be ashamed Let your conscience be your guide Cuban music has much more polyrhythmic texture than North American music, which tends to be less polyrhythmic and which tends to have a swing to it that is absent in Cuban music. That stuff we call swinging, Cuban music doesn't do that. Cuban music goes... Let's focus in on that. It all starts with the concept of clave, this repeating rhythmic pattern that the whole song is based around, right? Well, um, the clave emerges is the way I look at it. The person who puts the clave forefront in the consciousness is Arsenio Rodriguez in the 1940s, but the clave goes back, and it's in Yoruba music. It's in the sacred music of the Yoruba rituals, for example. Oh, 
the clave is a rhythmic key. It's a way that you can lack, uh, stack a polyrhythm up together and it doesn't sound like a bunch of noise. So, for example, if the clave is bump, 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 you already know that a bell part is going to go gang, 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 gang. And even if you don't have that first beat, that bop, 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 if no one's actually playing it, the fact this other guy is playing bang, bang, a musician knows what that means. And you stack up multiple rhythms. Each instrument's playing a different rhythm, but they all fit in key with the clave, much the same way that if you're in the key of C, you have chords that are dissonant and chords that are more consonant with the key of C. You can play a dissonant Harmony, and if you want, you can play an F sharp in the key of C, but you understand it relative to C. You mentioned Arsenio Rodriguez, the great band leader from the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Cuban dance music seemed to reach a maturity during that time, with genres emerging like the son montuno and the mambo. What was happening during that era? I think the key period was World War II, mm-hmm. actually. When Batista was president, elected in a legitimate election, and had legitimized the Communist Party, who supported him. And the Communist Party was very big in Cuba. So during those years, there was no domestic political turmoil. The communists were allowed to have their own radio station, Mil Diez, which had a heavily nationalist cultural bent. This all got shut down after the end of World War II and with the coming of the Cold War. But during the 40s, bands were playing live on the radio every day and in the dance hall every night and traveling all around. Busy, busy, busy. Arsenio Rodriguez, in particular, the great fountainhead of modern Cuban music, what we subsequently got to know as salsa, in many ways derives from Arsenio's innovations. Arsenio took the son sextet and added to it a second trumpet, then a third and a fourth, added a piano, and very importantly, added a tumbadora, or what we call a conga drum, which locked the rhythm down in a heavier way. take a quick break, but when we return, we'll continue our discussion with author Ned Sublett about the music of Cuba. Then we'll review the new release from the late patriarch of the staple singers, Pop Staples. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Conmigo no hay aquello de no canto una canción Conmigo no hay aquello de que no canto bolero Yo canto una guaracha, una rumba y hasta un son Y canto cualquier cosa y es porque soy buen cantor Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And we are taking our Sound Opinions world tour to the island of Cuba to explore its great musical heritage. Greg, even though this trip is virtual, it's one we couldn't even have imagined a few years ago. You know, that's true, Jim. Now that the ice is thawing, our guide is Ned Sublet, author of Cuba and its music, from the first drums to the mambo. Now, Ned, I remember one of my first experiences with Cuban music was through listening to Dizzy Gillespie, who referenced it pretty openly in his music. So how would you say that Cuban music filtered into the United States and into the language of these jazz artists of the 40s and 50s? It really goes back all the way to the 19th century. I mean, Cuban music had been filtering in over and over again. Our greatest composer of the 19th century, very little remembered today, Louis Moreau Gottschalk already is bringing in Cuban rhythmic principles into United States music. The Peanut Vendor in 1931. The Peanut Vendor, one of the most important records ever. First pop record in the United States to have maracas on it. Copied by every band. Latin dancing already in the 30s is, well, already in the teens is a craze. Dizzy, who comes to town in the 30s from Shiraz, South Carolina, is befriended and mentored by Mario Bausa, the future music director of Machito and his Afro-Cubans, one of the greatest bands in United States history. Dizzy is tuned into this, and is he's Mario's roommate on the road. Mario shows him how Cuban music works. Dizzy says... Famously, I want to get one of those tom-tom things. He meant a conga drum, a tumbadora, and Mario hooked him up with Chano Pozo from Havana, who was coming to town. And Chano's collaboration with Dizzy changed music. Manteca, Dizzy Gillespie's record with Chano Pozo, was Dizzy's biggest hit. And there was no musician who wasn't aware of Manteca. It was a true stylistic revolution. Chano invented the conga drum as a solo instrument in the way that Lionel Hampton had invented the vibes as a solo instrument, or Coleman Hawkins invented the tenor sax as a solo instrument. Mm. All throughout the 50s, the Latin influence was so palpable. It was palpable in jazz, it was palpable in pop music, uh, rock and roll. The cha-cha-cha pervades rock and roll, you know? Hey, 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 ta, pa, 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 yeah. pa, that's what I say, pa, 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 pa. that's a cha-cha-cha. And what about the rhythmic line, uh, Ned, to Bo Diddley and the Bo Diddley rhythm, so important to so much rock and roll? Bo Diddley was a very special person and a very particular genius. His Bo Diddley beat, I mean, it was clave, but he didn't play it like a clave. He turned it into a beat. 
This was at a time when the mambo was hot. This was at a time when, uh, well, I mean, there was that famous club in Chicago called Rum Boogie, R-H-U-M-B-O-O-G-I-E, as in Rumba Boogie, where T-Bone Walker got his start. Mm -hmm. You hear the rumba in the Chicago blues, you know, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters had a rumba boogie beat. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the drummers in Chicago, uh, you're absolutely right, during that era were playing a lot of those kind of rhythms, variations of those kind of rhythms. It was amazing how pervasive it seemed to be. The sight of a finger make a dog wag his tail. The whisper from a voice make a train jump the rail. You take her to the racetrack and show her a face. A horse and wind and yells coming for his place. You know she's in the something. We are talking to Ned Sublet, the author of Cuba and its music from the first drums to the mambo and a uh, a worldwide world music scholar. Ned, let's talk about the effect of Castro and the revolution coming in 59. You know, I grew up in, in uh, Jersey City, Union City, right? The, the biggest Cuban diaspora after Miami. So I That's had a right. lot of Cuban friends who had, mm-hmm. you know, fled uh, in the in the dying days of Batista or were lucky enough to get out, as they mm-hmm. considered it, in the early days of Castro. What happened to the music? I mean, they had their musical traditions, right? But now it was like their nostalgia for the homeland. What was actually happening in Cuba as the Communist Party solidified its grip? That is a fascinating story. Let me assure you that music never stopped in Cuba. I think that we can see in the Cuban case, as in others, I'm thinking of the flood in New Orleans, you Mm -hmm. know, after Katrina, everybody immediately put on walking to New Orleans to reassure themselves that New Orleans was still there, that Fats Domino was still alive, that there was continuity with the past. After the revolution in Havana, in Cuba, people continued listening to the music they had listened to before, and maybe they even loved it more. Now, there was a dynamic, innovative music scene, and it wasn't like things closed off all at once. There was a transitional period of a couple of years. Those years are very interesting. Mongo Santa Maria comes down to Havana in, I think, 1960 and records Our Man in Havana for Fantasy Records. There's still some back and forth going on. After the break-in relations, many of the technicians left. One of the things the revolution was about was that Cuba didn't own its own technology, didn't own its own technical people. Everything was brought from outside. And with the disappearance of all that and with the embargo, there was no way to get spare parts for the tape recorders. Yeah, I remember my my Cuban friend's uh, parents talking about, you know, they were trying to smuggle in reeds for horns for their family members that were still there. You couldn't get a drum head, for example. The quality of instruments went down markedly, but it didn't stop Cuban musicians from playing. Mm. And the Cuban Revolution had as a priority education, and music education was very much part of that, and they set up a system. They brought in musicians from Eastern Europe with the proviso, you play in our symphony, but you also teach in our school. This was available for free to anyone. So you had this generation like Jose Luis Cortes, El Tosco, um, black kid from Santa Clara, very poor, who comes to town, sleeps on his flute case in the bus terminal at the beginning, but, you know, he comes out of this process 
an excellent player of Mozart, as well as a great jazz musician, knowledgeable in all the Cuban popular genres and in the Afro-Cuban repertoire. So you've got some of the most erudite musicians in the world here, and lots of them. So they've always had a good music education system, but there's also something else. Music in Cuba, in a very old-world way, tends to be dynastic. Almost all the big band leaders, not all of them, but most of them, are sons of musicians, and in many cases, grandsons of musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, so you start playing an instrument as soon as you're big enough to reach it. Chucho Valdez, son of Bebo Valdez, can't remember not playing the piano. One important movement that began during that period after the revolution in the 60s and 70s was called Nueva Trova, mm -hmm. and it still carries on to this day. Mm -hmm. What is Nueva Trova? Well, Trova itself is the word in the word troubadour, and the Trova back in the late 19th, early 20th century were these poor bohemian guys who maybe didn't want a miserable job rolling tobacco, or maybe they rolled tobacco in the daytime and sang at night. We call these people in the U.S. folk singers, which is really a very inadequate hmm. label for somebody who plays guitar and writes and sings songs. In the 60s, a kind of Cuban think tank was created to come up with a new Cuban music. And the trova was remodeled in a very sort of conscious way as the Nueva Trova. And, of course, the most famous figures of that movement, Silvio Rodriguez and Pablo Milanes, uh, were known for the revolutionary content of their lyrics, which means that they were very acceptable in the Cuban media. So added to it uh, a system of study. And then the generation after them, you have songwriting figures like Pedro Luis Ferrer, and one of the greatest singers in Cuba, popular singers, one of the greatest guaracheros, or Carlos Varela, the, who is more of a rock trovador. That is one of the permanent streams of Cuban music, it would appear. In describing it, it, it seems like there's some parallels almost with Tropicalia in Brazil with this particular movement. As a matter of fact, it was a very conscious model. Alfredo Guevara, the director of ICAC, had gone to Brazil and seen what the Tropicalistas were doing and said, why don't we create a new Cuban music? The difference, of course, was that the Tropicalistas were not political, and the Tropicalistas in Brazil were, in fact, much criticized by the left singers who were more like the Trovadores. We're talking to Ned Sublet about Cuban music on Sound Opinions. Ned, this brings us to salsa. Mm -hmm. Salsa is, of course, a, a successful genre. Many people think it was introduced by 
Puerto Rican musicians living in New York in the 70s. But there's a lot of controversy about the word. Mm -hmm. Some people say salsa is really just a marketing term. It's not an actual rhythm. And that labeling music salsa is just a way for us to enjoy Cuban music without admitting that it's Cuban music at a time when we were afraid of Cuba, right? Yeah. Now, salsa grew very organically out of what was being done in New York. And we had salsa in New York years before it was being marketed as that. Salsa in general is like a flavor word, you know. It means flavor essence or something Mm. attached to no specific rhythm but a kind of a general style based on Cuban music of the 50s. This happens about 1974 when it's already well established. The movie Our Latin Thing from I think 73 does not use the word but it appears the next year when uh, Jerry Masucci produces a movie called Salsa. And subsequently it becomes a form of identification, a radio genre. Mm -hmm. It becomes a, a way of cultural identification in Puerto Rico and much of Latin America. I imagine, Ned, that as we build that virtual wall, you know, the United States, uh, with Cuba, and we're not letting anyone in or making it hard for anyone to get in. We're making it hard for anybody to get out. I'm really curious about what influence a rock and roll and then hip-hop begins to have on young Cuban musicians in the 70s, when you're cutting your teeth at the CBGB scene, in the 80s, in the 90s, in this new millennium. What's happening there in the underground of Cuban music? Well, this is a question that comes up in the U.S. a lot. Uh, We in the U.S. always want to see ourselves reflected everywhere else. So, you know, if you could find a a surf band in Cuba from the 60s, there'd be people in the U.S. who'd be interested in that. But but there's examples, too, like in the Eastern Bloc of, you know, the plastic people of the universe going to jail for playing Velvet Underground songs. There certainly was a rock movement in Cuba all along. And, of course, in the 60s, there was a lot of repression directed against it. You know, you didn't want to have long hair in Havana because you might have a haircut uh, imposed on you. Of course, this also happened in the little town in New Mexico I grew up in. (laughs) There's a whole rock scene, and... They tend to be real good. There's a hip-hop scene, but hip-hop never really happened in Spanish-speaking world, right? Because Mm. it's so set up for English. Hip-hop did take off in Cuba. I mean, much belatedly, like in the late 90s, you really got started. What got rebranded as reggaeton, which is in many ways a very traditional music. It's the Antillian beat that's been bouncing around for 300 years or more. That's the habanera. The style of vocalizing. This goes back to quadrille calling in the Jamaican dance hall, right? This goes back to the drill sergeant in the militia for free men of color. It goes back to the mayoral, the overseer on the plantation. So reggaeton seemed to fit 
Cubans' needs better because it was more adapted to them culturally and rhythmically. Interesting. I, you know, you mentioned hip-hop and how rare it is. I do recall uh, Orishas uh, as one group that seemed to forge a real following outside of Cuba, basing its sound on hip-hop, but also combining it with some of those salsa rhythms we've been talking about. Orishas were great. And there are other very good rappers from Cuba. Telmari, um, you know, Obsession, the husband and wife uh, rapping duo. Mm-hmm. But I think you'll find that reggaeton is much bigger. Uh, sure, yeah. It's it's gigantic music. And uh, you heard it in New York quite a bit the last 10 years or so. And it's a lot. Uh, extraordinary how that uh, you can hear the connection with with a lot of these Cuban rhythms we've been talking about. And we mentioned Buena Vista Social Club earlier, uh, Ned, and uh, I was wondering if the worldwide attention that was paid to that record and those Cuban musicians on that record, if that had any kind of effect on the music that was being made in the country. I mean, what, what has been the... It had an enormous effect. What it happened? had an enormous effect. It, it, had, it had a lot of effects. First of all, it triggered a wave of people traveling to Cuba, Some of them, no doubt, thought they were going to this Hunza-like land where people live to be 130 smoking cigars, dancing (laughs) and drinking rum. Others just wanted to hear a good song. That was a good thing. I think the most important thing about Buena Vista Social Club was that because of the embargo in the U.S., you know, news from Cuba was very limited. And when people thought of Cuba, they tended to think of the one easily demonizable figure that was allowed to be talked about in the American media, which was Fidel. Mm -hmm. So people used to make this joke in the early 90s. I would say, "Okay, I'm going to Havana next week. And somebody would say, say hi to Fidel for me. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't going to see Fidel, but Fidel was the only Cuban they knew. (laughs) And then with the tsunami of first Jesus Alemany's Cubanismo, got to remember that one, and Buena Vista Social Club, You know, you couldn't say, well, yeah, let's starve these people for their own good so they'll overthrow the government when you're thinking about, you know, Compay Segundo and Omar Portuondo and Eliades Ochoa. Mm. It humanized Cuba in the eyes of the United States, and I think that was really its greatest achievement. What do you think is going to happen now? We're moving towards normalizing relations. What do you think is going to happen musically? There's there's two Cubas. There's the the Cuban musicians that have been on Cuba, and then there's the Cubans who are everywhere in the world, Europe and the Americas, since uh, we lost touch with Cuba. The diasporic connection is very important these days. As you said, there's a Cuban diaspora of musicians that's pretty much worldwide, certainly in the Americas and Europe, but also other places. I know there's Cuban musicians in Japan, wherever, you know. And now more and more, these people are going back to Cuba either for visits or even buying a house or in some cases even returning to live. I know of two uh, fairly important musicians who were living in the United States and have gone back to live in Cuba. Mm. It's been more than 20 years since most of the Cuban musicians that you did see had asked for political asylum. That's not the case. Yosvani Terry, the great Cuban saxophonist and composer who lives in New York, did a magnificent research project, got a grant here, 
went to Cuba, became uh, a godchild in the uh, Araraca Bildo of Matanzas. This is the Daumean religion that mm. is still practiced with ancestral drums, ancestral songs, ancestral language, etc. Learned this music that is not known even in Havana, commissioned a set of drums, came back to New York, mounted a beautiful uh, jazz version of it, made a record called New Throned King. It's a back and forth between here and there project. It seems like there's a lot more of that going on. All right, so uh, Ned, the ugly Americans, I would I would count me and Greg among them. If you had to, for for the betterment of our enlightenment, give us three or four must live Cuban artists that we need to hear right now. Well, you got to have Arsenio Rodriguez. Hmm. Arsenio, to me, is the most important Cuban artist of the twentieth century. <laughs> If you want the music from a more recent time, there's double digits of world-class bands in Havana. But one record I like uh, from 2004 by Manolito y su Trabuco is called Locos por mi Havana, and it's one of those perfect radio singles. It doesn't sound the same from beginning to end. Cuban music, very much unlike the kind of mechanized dance music that we have, where it's going to be the same all the way through, Cuban music goes and pushes the dancer through a set of changes. Mm -hmm. So there's a point where the gear shifts, the song proper ends, and we go to the montuno, the chorus starts to sing a repeated phrase, the pianist plays a repeating rhythmic loop, the rhythm gets hotter, the dancing picks up, and Cuban popular dance records all do this. Scance a bit at the Buena Vista Social Club as a, as a musical accomplishment. Is there a record that may serve a stepping stone function for uh, listeners unfamiliar with music that uh, would be a better fit than Buena Vista? I like Selena Gonzalez, who just died at the age of 85. She was the greatest Cuban voice that U.S. audiences never got to hear. Mm-hmm. And she was invited to be in the Buena Vista Social Club. And in one of the great career miscalculations of all time, turned it down. (laughs) She started recording in 1949. The early recordings are great. But I like the ones that she did in the studio in in Cuba in the the 70s and 80s. Fine listening. We're going to get our clave on. How, how am I going to see if the Cubans, uh, if, I, if I got it retained? Am I doing all right there, Ned? 
<laughs> they used to laugh. Let's at work me. on that I, a little I, bit. I could, they tried to teach me the merengue on the on the timbales. There you go. All right. All you're right. Gonna, you're gonna have to start charging for lessons there, Ned. I do actually. <laughs> We've been talking to Ned Sublet, the author of Cuba and its music from the first drums to the mambo, getting a great tour of one of the great musical islands ever. Thank you, Ned, for coming on Sound Opinions. It's my pleasure. I just got started. And we want to hear from you. What are your opinions on Cuban music? Are you planning a trip to the island? Will you take me? What Cuban artists do you think North Americans ought to know about? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, a review of the last release from Pop Staples, now finally completed 15 years after his death. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and that's a little bit of Pop Staples with a track called Better Home from what is his final album, Don't Lose This. Just came out, even though it was crafted in the late 1990s. Roebuck Pops Staples, what a history. Grew up learning blues guitar on Dockery Farm at the feet of Charlie Patton, one of the founders of the modern blues. Alongside of that, Pops was singing in gospel quartets, he fused that sound in Chicago when he started teaching his family those gospel harmonies, his daughters and his son, basically forming the family group, the Staple Singers. Had a huge run of success on the gospel circuit. Roebuck eventually befriended Martin Luther King, became one of King's lieutenants in the civil rights marches 
of the 60s, wrote some songs that basically were the soundtrack to that movement, like Freedom Highway and Why Am I Treated So Bad. They had a huge run of hits as the staple singers at Stax Records with Respect Yourself and I'll Take You There in the 70s. And then Pops went on to make solo recordings in the 90s before his death in 2000. This was the recording he was working on at the time of his death. It wasn't completely finished. His daughter, Mavis Staples, who took her father's instructions, Don't Lose This, the title of the record, and brought him to uh, producer Jeff Tweedy for some mixing. And now we have the final results of that recording. Here's a track from it called The Lady's Letter, on which Pops sings with his three daughters, basically the final incarnation of the Staples singers. That's Mavis, Cleedy, and Yvonne Staples singing with Pop Staples on this track. The Lady's Letter from Pop Staples on Sound Opinions. I was talking to a lady She said she had a dream Said she had a dream It was so sad Sad and lonely The dream that the lady dreamed If you listen to my song If you listen to my song ooh, ooh. Tell you what the lady dreams. I'll tell you what the lady dreams. Says I got a letter. And this is what it read. Coming home from the wall. That's what the letter says. That is the lady's letter from Don't Lose This, the posthumous release by Pop Staples. Greg, we should note here that you wrote a fine biography published last year of Mavis Staples. You are steeped in this music. I'm curious to hear your opinion, but uh, I get to give mine first. I think that this is an important record. I think it's one that people who love the legacy of the Staples singers uh, should definitely own. I don't think it's the place to start. He's at the end of his life. You can hear the weakness in his voice. Now, Pop Staples always had a rather high and reedy voice. It always was kind of kind of weirdly boyish at the same time that it was very worldly, and I think that that was the bridge between church and blues. But he's fading here, and that, that hurts. And at times, I understand he wasn't able to even play that trademark signature guitar. I think Jeff Tweedy and his son Spencer do a pretty good job of adding a little judicious guitar here and there, some sonic sweetening, cleaning things up. But it reminds me of the Cash recordings with Rick Rubin. Johnny Cash is clearly at the end of his life. 
but he's a giant. This is a gift. This is a document. Students of music need to own this. It's not the first Staples-related album I'd go to, but to hear him sing with those three women again in a song like that, and, and how prescient, Greg, right? Something like No News is Good News, in which you have pop warning. Too many sidewalks are stained with the blood of our precious children. Man, that could have been written last week by Lupe Fiasco, right? And and also the, the religion here is more live your life morally, be kind to others, and try to have a compass rather than it's preaching. So there are, there are wonderful things here. Just start with about three or four other records, all of them listed in your bibliography of your book, and then listen to this. Try it later on after your education with the Staples begin. Well, Jim, I basically agree with a lot of that. I think it's a gift to have a pop staples record at this stage. I know that when I first started talking to Mavis about her career and her life in the early 2000s for this book, this was one of the first things on her mind. So she was thinking about this almost from day one. I have to find a way to get this music out. Mm. Clearly, it's an unfinished record. Clearly, it is not the best work Pop Staples has ever done. But I think the stuff that did sort of have a finished feel to it is really, really good. That track we just played, The Lady's Letter, with the family singing on it, really is quite moving. And I think in particular, the track Sweet Home and Better Home, where Pops ostensibly is singing about the afterlife. He's heading to this other place, and he knows it. The mortality is looming. But there's also an element that I think really echoes what he said at a concert in 1965, is I want to make heaven my home, but I want to enjoy myself a little down here, too. (laughs) And I think basically he was embracing what Martin Luther King was saying. Hey, listen, we can't just keep singing about the afterlife. We have to make this life better for us as a people as well. So I think to his dying day that he was thinking about this, that he was not only thinking about himself, but his community, I think, is a really moving message. And if this leads people to other great recordings that the staple singers have done and that Pops himself has done as a solo artist in the 90s, it's worth having. It's definitely not a buy-it record because it's not uniformly great, but for those four or five tracks that are good, I say definitely try it. So a double try it for Pops staples. Don't lose this. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to talk to one of the founding members of Pink Floyd, Nick Mason, on the band's legacy. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Greg and Jim, this is Tucker from San Francisco. I just finished listening to your Secret Love episode, and you skipped Elvis Costello's I Want You, probably the creepiest unrequited love song ever. I want you, you had your fun, you don't get well no more. I want you, your fingernails go dragging down the wall. 
Be careful, darling, you might fall. On first listen, it seems to just be a sweet song, and then as it progresses, you realize just how deeply frightening and one-sided the relationship is. Thanks for the great show. Bye. I want you. You said, young man, I do believe you're dying. I want you. Hey, Brad from New Hampshire. Number one, Olivia Newton-John was one of the most beautiful women to ever walk the planet. And she had a great voice, very fragile. Uh, number two, great secret love song, Secret Society by Utopia, Todd Rundgren. My name is Ted DuPont, Montclair, New Jersey. I heard your review of Shadows in the Night by Dylan, and I went out and got the album. I listened to it. I thought it was pretty good. I'm glad he made it. It's no blood on the tracks. But to me, Dylan's real tribute to Frank Sinatra came maybe about 10 years ago. There is a TV special, a birthday special for Frank Sinatra, and Frank requested the Dylan sing Restless Farewell, which was apparently one of Frank's favorite Dylan songs. So Dylan came out and played Restless Farewell from Times Era Change, and at the end, Dylan turns to Frank and says, Happy birthday, Mr. Frank. And that moment just hits you right in the heart, made me want to cry. Okay, that's my comment. But the bottles are done We've killed each one And the table's full and overflowed And the corner sign Says it's closing time so Hi, Sound Opinions. This is your very devoted fan, Sally, calling from the quaint little Winzerhausen, Germany. I'm calling because I've been a little bit concerned that there's been maybe some funny business happening in your studios there, maybe somebody coming in with a gun and forcing you guys to play some songs. Kind of started back my concerns with the mixtape show, mostly all with you, Jim. You made me listen to Taylor Swift, and then one of your top songs of 2014 was that, like, big booty song or whatever. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, 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 bass. What made me call now was my concerns really heightened with the Valentine's show. Freaking Olivia Newton-John? I can't believe it. Oh, man, what's going on? Love you. Anyway, I'm just concerned. I really care about you guys. I really respect your opinions, Greg. Thanks for trying to keep Jim in line here. I hope everything's okay. Thanks for your great show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.